Welcome to Weird Studies, an arts and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martell. For more episodes or to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. This is Phil. Welcome to Weird Studies, where this week we are discussing a documentary, The Net, The Unabomber, LSD, and the Internet, by the German filmmaker Lutz Dombeck. This is a wide-ranging film, and J.F. and I had a wide-ranging conversation about it. A little too wide-ranging for a single show, in fact, which is why we cut out a 40-minute segment and will release it next week as a Patreon extra for our $5 a month subscribers. I mention this for two reasons. First, to make sense of a couple of times where we call back to things we've said earlier in the conversation that you won't have heard in this recording. And, second, to pimp our Patreon content yet again. As you may know, pimping ain't easy, so we have to keep doing it every week, practicing, so that we may perfect our pitch, working by trial and error, to find arrangements of words that can optimally manipulate human thought and action, and finally arriving at wording so persuasive that, in the end, you will have no choice but to comply with our demands. Once we have mastered the science of psychological control, your actions will become entirely involuntary, and the money will come pouring in. However, as support of weird studies is necessary for the rational evolution of society to its next stage of development, this is all for the best. We at Weird Studies are creating a utopian society. And now that you are hearing these words, you have no choice but to join us. Resistance is futile. So go to patreon.com forward slash weird studies and check out all the great content that you must now enjoy. At the risk of spoiling my little joke, I'll point out that I am satirizing the idea of cybernetic social control summed up in the title of Norbert Wiener's book, The Human Use of Human Beings, one of many odd cultural artifacts of the post-World War II era we discuss in this episode. It's an era packed with seemingly disconnected cultural forms, personal computers, fluxus happenings, systems theory, psychedelic drugs, one-world government conspiracy theories, the Whole Earth Catalog, and Ted Kaczynski, a.k.a. the Unabomber. Kaczynski was a serial killer with complicated and not entirely comprehensible motivations, but one of them, at least, was his despair at a totalizing technological system that would enslave human beings, had perhaps already enslaved them, and that would brook no opposition With the help of Suzanne Treister's Hexen 2.0 Tarot, J.F. and I consider the world of total control that Kaczynski feared, and another world that promised a kind of neo-primitivist deliverance from it. And perhaps these two worlds are mirrors of one another. We hope you enjoy our conversation. Today, uh, we're going to be discussing ideas or challenges to the whole idea of, of technological society. Of course, being podcasters, we must acknowledge <laughs> the role of technology in our own lives. Well, did you, by any chance, do you get time to listen to that audiobook excerpt from Chuck Klosterman's Eating the Dinosaur? I did. The chapter about Ted Kaczynski? Mm-hmm. I did and enjoyed it. And he made a great point. He was like, that basically nothing anybody ever says about the internet is worth anything. Because pro or con, we all have a vested interest in whatever our opinion is. And he points out like that guy at the New Republic who got in trouble for fighting with these trolls online by creating various sock puppet accounts. 
And then he was outed because I guess he wasn't very good at his deception. Uh, and then ended up writing a book called something like Against the Machine. And Klosterman is like, well, he wouldn't have been against the machine if he hadn't got his fingers stuck in its gears, right? And then he points out some other guy whose name I forget, who wrote a book about how the internet uh, is... Clay Shirky or something like that. Yeah, something I, like that. I, I, remember the, I remember reading about this guy a while ago, but uh, go on. Yeah, you know, technophilic manifesto about how the internet is solving all our problems and making a better world and blah, blah, blah. And he's like, yeah, because the internet has been very good to this guy. And his point was like, actually, Ted Kaczynski, in a sense, has a certain kind of, um, even though he was a madman who killed people. Uh, the Unabomber, for those who don't, might not know the actual guy's name, uh, the Unabomber. Right. Yeah. So just in case anybody is in a mood to accuse us of being Unabomber apologists, I will say upfront that it is always relevant that he was a, a murderer. And I also think that his reasons for killing people were a good deal less high-minded than he often liked to make out. But uh, like I know, I mean, I've never obviously talked to Ted Kaczynski, but nevertheless, uh, he seemed to be a remarkably rage and resentment-fueled individual. <laughs> yes, um, putting it nicely. But, you know, Klosterman sort of points out, like, yes, he was a madman, but he might have had a point. Or at least the fact that he was a madman doesn't necessarily militate against him having a point. That's all Klosterman wants to get us to contemplate. And Klosterman said, says, and there is one very great thing you can say for Ted Kaczynski, is that he did not have a horse in this race. Right. He retreated to his Montana cabin in 1971, and he missed the entire internet. He never used the internet. He never was a part of the society that was in any way influenced by the internet. And when he was caught, it was actually when the internet was only really just beginning. It was in the stone ages of the mass public internet. And yet, and this is Klosterman's point, the things that Kaczynski writes in his manifesto, the manifesto that was published by the Washington Post and the New York Times, despite the fact that he missed all of this stuff, the things that he writes actually apply better to the internet than anything else that people have written, pro or contra. He seems to be the one person on the planet who had some knowledge of what makes the internet tick, who had no knowledge of the internet. Right. And that on its own makes the Unabomber Manifesto an interesting document. I mean, it's interesting for a lot of reasons, but that's one of them. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I don't know if he was the only one. I mean, out of France, we had guys like Jacques Ellul, who was writing similar stuff. Well, similar yeah. stuff. Um, a, a very well, he, strong. He, inf yeah. he influenced Kaczynski, I think. Yes, he did. A very strong critique of technology. And if we were discussing Ellul's work today, we wouldn't have the burden of having to um, distance ourselves from the Unabomber. But the reason we're discussing the Unabomber and his manifesto is because of a fantastic documentary that Phil uh, let me up to last week and that I watched yesterday called The Net, Das Netz. It's a German documentary, The Net, uh, The Unabomber, LSD and the Internet. And uh, this was a documentary released in 2003, which reframes or tries to um, actually I would I would describe it as follows. I would say that the documentary is a, a meditation on the effects and the costs of technological society, but it's carried out using the Unabomber as a kind of a lens or as a kind of centerpiece or as a kind of way of entering into this question of what technology does and what technology is. And by technology, I'm talking about modern industrial technology, broadly speaking, and specifically digital information technology. Although LSD is also a technology that is taken very seriously in this film. Yeah, and it's treated, I think, by the circles, uh, the relevant circles here, they treated LSD as a kind of information technology. Yeah. Um, and it goes back to information theory and all that, which we may get into. It's going to be a fun conversation because uh, there are so many, so many threads that um, the filmmaker Lutz uh, Dambeck kind of weaves together in this, mm -hmm. in, this, uh, in this documentary, which is really a film essay. It reminded me of the films of Chris Marker, there's so many threads that we could follow, we could pull on that we, we really don't know where we'll end up, but it's it's definitely going to be interesting, at least to me. <laughs> I know this film is like a great big pinata 
of weird <laughs> of weird studies conversation topics. I feel like we could just sort of blindly take a whack at it with sticks and something is going to fall out. And right. it's almost necessary to kind of take that approach because if you say, what is that film about? It's really hard to say what it's about. Yeah, Ted Kaczynski plays a major role in it, and he is kind of a unifying motif. But if you say, but what's the film about? What is the theme of which Kaczynski is a motif or a, a symbol or whatever? It's really hard to say. What it really is is the net. I mean, the title, the net. The net doesn't just refer to the shorthand term for the internet. The net is, the film itself is a net. And in fact, there's a kind of recurrent visual motif of the filmmaker on a variety of like airplanes and uh, coffee shops and, and so on, taking notes on the various things that he's turning up. It's making kind of a kind of flow chart where he's connecting different characters, themes, and you can see this net constructing itself as the film develops. Yeah. Um, and, it, and you look at a network like that, a network of concepts, and you say, what is that about? There's no one thing necessarily that a network is about. The network ultimately is about the network. But right. you can't sort of say, well, what it really boils down to is, I mean, technology is the closest thing that you can come up with. But even there, it's just like, but it's a particular flavor of technology. It's technology within a certain historical window and technology framed for certain ends ends of the most grandiose kinds of human engineering projects, trying to engineer better, more peaceful human beings. But... Beyond that, the topic almost sort of falls apart in our hands. It's sort of like you try to grasp it and it just sort of oozes through your fingers. Yeah. You could argue that it's about utopias. Um, And you could argue then that the way that the film presents the idea of utopia is like something like a like a like the collective dreams really we were talking about that in our last episode on Ligotti. I mean, a utopia is a kind of dream that seizes that seizes control and all of a sudden everyone's serving this kind of this dream and Ted Kaczynski resists the dream but since it's a dream I mean a dream is impervious to resistance whatever you throw into a dream just becomes part of the dream and then Kaczynski Kaczynski's idiotic idea that by bombing random people who were somehow tangentially involved with the with MIT or whatever or uh, that he would somehow you know start this revolution against technology and I don't even know how he could possibly imagine such a revolution could be possible at this point um by doing that, he shows how Ted Kennedy, Ted Kennedy, Ted Kaczynski, <laughs> Ted Kaczynski was unable to see that he could only be part of the very thing he was critiquing, that he was an integral part of the process by which this techno utopia is coming into being. There's a nice quote by Dan Beck from an interview I read. He says, uh, Ted Kaczynski simply hadn't grasped the fact when it comes to the system he was dealing with, that there was no outside even isolated in a forest cabin, you are part of the system. Mm-hmm. I think the word system comes up again and again in, in the, yeah. the filmmaker's notes. And I think this is maybe a film about system. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. You know. So I have kind of a cool object. I'll hold it up to the thing. Have you ever heard about this? This is the Suzanne Schreister Hexen 2.0 tarot deck. I've seen it, but I've never, uh, I've seen the box. I'm not sure it's very easy to find anymore. Suzanne Schreister is a British, I think, artist who wanted to create an artwork about basically the subject matter contained in the net in this film that we're talking about today. So stuff to do with cybernetics, psychedelics, consciousness research, and counterculture, stuff to do with the sort of weird interpenetration of science and art in the 60s. You know, before I was talking about how there's something kind of elusive about the net by Lutz Steinbeck, that, you know, we can say it's about 
various things. We might say it's about utopia, or we might say it's about systems thinking, or we might say that it's about Ted Kaczynski, or we might say that it's about the internet. But what it really seems to be is about a network of interlinked, interdependent concepts. And what it's about is the network, not any particular nodal point. At the same time, you know, you watch the net and you're like, well, it's about something rather than nothing. It's not just random shit. There's definitely it's not a, it's a, not a schizophrenic word salad. Yeah, it yeah. definitely feels like it's about something. But what is that thing? I don't know if Suzanne Treister ever saw the net, but she is coming at the same problem from a different direction. And she comes up with a novel solution, which is she creates a 78-card tarot deck where, okay, I'm going to read off some of the cards. Seven of Swords, Cybernetic Seance. One of the things that's discussed in the film, The Net, is the Macy Conferences. Yeah. And the Macy Conferences is a collection of cybernetic scientists. Cybernetics is a discipline of mathematics that originates in World War II research. Originally, it's Norbert Wiener's way of devising a more efficient anti-aircraft mechanism by starting to conceive of the flight of an aircraft, its pilot, its ground control, all of the circumstances around something simple, flight of an aircraft that you're trying to shoot down, thinking of it as part of an integrated system. And cybernetics is a science of systems, of systems thinking. Now, this systems thinking leads in unpredictable directions. And so the Macy conferences or a conference of scientists. Sometimes it was attended by members of the CIA for whom one of the fundamental ideas of cybernetics, the control of human beings, looking at human beings also as elements of cybernetic systems that can be controlled and molded in certain optimal ways, obviously going to be of interest to the CIA, whose MK Ultra program is uh, a good example of their research in the control of human beings. And so by the nature of cybernetic science, though, these Macy's conferences also started involving a lot of surprising people, people who were not necessarily scientists. The Macy conference participants, a lot of them started turning up at Esalen, the encounters group, spiritual thing, you retreat, know what I'm saying? Yeah. Retreat. Yeah. Uh, and this Seven of Swords from Suzanne Treister's Hexendeck, it's a drawing that she does, and it's a kind of a beautiful piece of art. I'll hold it up to the camera so you can look at it. You probably can't see it too well. Yeah. It's a little yeah. dark. I see it. A lovely piece of art representing something that happened at one of the Macy conferences where all these hard-headed scientists had a seance. I don't know the details of it, but like that is a pretty good figure, actually, for this sort of crossover point between science, mysticism, and art that seems to be yet another thing we could say that the net is about or mm -hmm. that the hex and two tarot is about. That's but interesting. Let's, but let's uh, go through the deck. Let's do a little bit of cartomancy here and come up with a uh, another card and this card will tell the truth of our conversation it will it will be a commentary on everything we're trying to do here today jf i have decreed it this, right. is, going, this is going to be uh this is the first bit of actual tarot reading we've done on the show let's take the top card let's see what it says justice all right perfect so the the, the major trumps are all numbered just like in the regular tarot and they're given the canonic designations. So, you know, Trump eight is justice. Now what's on the card says one world government. Hmm. It appears in a kind of a cartouche in this sort of like, almost like a tablet uh, surrounded by heavy gray clouds. And it has the following quotation. War can only be abolished by the establishment of a world government. All the researches of psychoanalysis, behaviorism, and biochemistry will be brought into play. The society of experts will control propaganda and education. It will teach loyalty to the world government and make nationalism high treason. The government, being an oligarchy, will instill submissiveness into the great bulk of the population, confining initiative and the habit of command to its own members. It is possible that it may invent ingenious ways of concealing its own power, leaving the forms of democracy intact and allowing the plutocrats to imagine that they are cleverly controlling these forms. Gradually, however, 
as the plutocrats become stupid through laziness, they will lose their wealth. It will pass more and more into public ownership and be controlled by the government of experts. Thus, whatever the outward forms may be, all real power will come to be concentrated in the hands of those who understand the art of scientific manipulation. Bertrand Russell, 1931, in The Scientific Outlook. Can I have a go there? Please. Okay, so that type of thinking, what Russell's writing there, was very uh, common at that time, obviously. In a sense, this is exactly what Aldous Huxley was writing against in Brave New World, a society of experts. Today, it sounds like a, like a ridiculous, almost um, satirical notion, right? When experts have been so wrong about so many things. But for a long time in the 20th century, the belief that scientists would one day run the world was very common. In fact, Norbert Wiener... His motivations for writing uh, the one book of his that I've read called The Human Use of Human Beings, which is one of the most sinister titles I've ever heard of, um, is all about that. So what Wiener is interested in, in doing, and, and I think Wiener came a lot from a, a place of um, he was disgusted with the irrational violence of humanity. The crux of his central intuition I've got a quote here from him. He says, uh, so in The Human Use of Human Beings, this is from an essay I wrote in my 20s, Norbert Wiener argues that mechanism and organism are functionally identical. Quote, the operation of the living individual and the operation of some of the newer communication machines are precisely parallel. Both of them have sensory receptors at one stage of their cycle of operation. That is, in both of them, there exists a special apparatus for collecting information from the outer world at low energy levels and for making it available in the operation of the individual or of the machine. So the absolute radical reductionism of this <laughs> observation. Yeah, it's true. Both organisms and mechanisms take in information and there's an input-output feedback loop going on. But from that intuition... Wiener writes a book about how to manage society cybernetically and how there is this holy grail that he's after, which is a perfectly rational, perfectly controlled uh, civilization that would be for him the embodiment of justice. There's a very Manichaean uh, vein in uh, Wiener's thinking. Uh, Wiener explicitly describes chaos as a demon in the book. And he's, he's very much trying to come up with some kind of new science that could replace politics is basically what he's doing. So this is one ideal of justice. And it's clearly a utopian ideal of justice, right? It doesn't allow, allow it's, it's Manichaean. It's a black and white kind of picture. It's like, we must go this way. And this is the way that we'll be able to abolish wars and create the great world citizen and the world government and all the rest. So you can see how this ideal of justice, it, it goes back to what we were talking about last time in the Ligotti episode, how I, this is, I think, is precisely what Deleuze would call the doctrine of judgment, because justice is the welcoming and affirmation of chaos for Deleuze. Uh, it's very different. Justice is happenstance. Justice is the fact that if you do this, this will happen, and that there's a risk in making that this, this or that decision. And so... Already, we can see this kind of clash between what Wiener was doing and what at least some members of the counterculture in the 60s are doing. But again, one of the things that this documentary shows very clearly is how deeply intertwined the, at the time, seemingly opposite forces of the state and the cultural sector, if you want to call it that, uh, how deeply intertwined they were. Um, you had scientists and CIA agents partying with hippies. I mean, this was going on in the 60s, but they were all guided by this utopian dream of creating a world where justice finally reigned. And that one world government, I mean, I'm no Alex Jones uh, fan, uh, so I don't believe in the one world government as a systematic conspiracy, but as a kind of dream that, that has us in its clutches, as a kind of dream that guides policy and that certainly that guides where funding goes uh, and a dream that's very present in the minds of a lot of people at MIT and Silicon Valley, I think it's the world, one world government is a very real fact of life today. Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah. and you can kind of think about one world government as a figure, almost a metaphorical figure for something exactly. else, if you want. Well, you can think about it as a figure actually for the 
technocracy, for the, the, the organized system of technology that Ted Kaczynski was trying to jam up and disrupt through his acts of terrorist violence. It's true. And it, should, it bears mentioning that um, the way that uh, at least Dambeck frames the Macy conferences in his documentary, he shows how many participants in those conferences, many of its leaders were explicitly after something like world government. They wanted to create what they called a world citizen. They wanted to break down the rigid authoritarian traditions that held sway in people's minds in order to make him more malleable and flexible and welcoming of change in order to usher in without resistance to usher in this world, this, this world of experts, this government of experts that would run the world smoothly, like a huge engineering program. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, it, it can get stranger than that, though, because it's easy to sort of say like, okay, well, what Bertrand Russell is foreseeing here is the devolution of the managed society, what Theodore Roosevelt called the technocracy, the degeneration of it into you know, ruled by experts, where it starts off and it's plutocrats who control everything, but through the sort of stupidity and laziness, they, without even meaning to, end up losing grip over their power and cede all of their power to technocrats, the people who run the machines. But you don't even need to assume that something like that, even though that is, to some, that's at least plausible, actually, as an explanation for a lot of what's happened in the North Atlantic West for the last hundred years. You can kind of think of technology itself as a cybernetic system with an emergent intelligence. Isn't it Jacques Ellul who wrote What Technology Wants? Well, I think he did. I, I don't know. I've, I've read him in French. I don't know how the titles were, but that seems like the type of question he would ask for sure. <laughs> I'm going to look it up. Oh, well, there's a book called What Technology Wants by Kevin Kelly whoever that may be, um, yeah. from the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Inevitable, a sweeping vision of technology is a living force that can expand our individual potential, <laughs> which is an example of like what Klosterman is saying when he's like, you know, basically nothing anybody says about the internet is trustworthy because they always have a vested interest. And it's like, yes, well, Kevin Kelly is an internet expert and he's going to tell us about how this is, you know, wonderful. But there's this way of thinking about technology as like that is the overmind. That is the one capital O, one consciousness of which all of our individual consciousnesses are a subset. Maybe this is why there's been a kind of a vogue for popularized monistic idealism among scientists that you were alluding to at one point, because this is a commonplace of internet punditry. People say information wants to be free. Not we want information to be freed. We impute to information itself a desire. And what it wants is to be free. It wants to be shared. It is intolerant of paywalls. It's intolerant of censorship, of any form of limitation. And, you know, you can start off mouthing those sort of conventional phrases, but like that can sink its hooks into your mind. And you can just start thinking very easily about how technology is actually the system, not just of the internet, but all kinds of different interlinked technologies. And that technology wants something. And what it wants is what any organism wants. It wants to expand itself. It wants to perpetuate. It wants to expand its domain. And I think what Kaczynski saw, the nightmare world that Kaczynski saw, is one in which human beings are determined by that hyper-organism of technology, that human beings and animals are simply the products of that organism. And you can look at something like the way Twitter works, for example. Okay, so what does the world citizen look like? Well, you know, you could say with a certain degree of cynicism, what it looks like is any rando posting on Twitter. People being aggressive and getting into fights with strangers for no reason, and it generates like a lot of emotion around bullshit that ultimately doesn't matter, but like, <laughs> what is Twitter? It's a vast engine for getting people to quarrel with each other. And you can say, well, capital T technology, the hyper-organism technology doesn't give a shit if you're happy or sad. What it wants for you is to be generating tweets, to be generating more reams of stuff, to be processing more. And that is all it wants. It doesn't care about content. In fact, this is perhaps the meaning of 
Marshall McLuhan's famous koan, the medium is the message. Content doesn't matter. Right. If you start thinking about Twitter as a kind of organism, what does Twitter want? Well, Twitter wants more. It just wants to expand its range. It wants more people to sign up. It wants those people to constantly be processing things in the form of like squalid online quarrels. Yeah. Um, and you can branch out from Twitter and say, it's not just Twitter, it's everything. It's just like, we are behaving in ways that the internet wants. Why, exactly. can, why is it so hard for us to leave Facebook? You know, Facebook is evil. You know, it's like Facebook has brought the American system of government to its knees. Not Mark Zuckerberg, not his board of directors, not individuals. Facebook did that. The medium itself, yeah. The medium yeah. itself does that. And then you could take a step back. It's like, it's not just Facebook, it's social media. Well, it's not just social media, it's the internet. Well, it's not just the internet, it's all the shit that the internet is connected to. Fucking satellites and satellite dishes and... Uh, you know, ultimately, yeah. there's a point at which technology becomes, as I say, the overmind. It becomes the one consciousness of which we are all subsidiary consciousness. And that really does become a nightmare. And you could kind of see how, like, okay, leaving aside what Ted Kaczynski's actual motivations might have been, which I'm somewhat skeptical. I think, as I say, he was driven by rage and resentment. A guy that smart could come up with several um, alternative and much more efficient ways of getting his message out, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, but I am going to at least grant him a certain feeling of despair and feeling like, you know, radical means must be necessary to disrupt this machine because it's, I mean, it's like in the matrix where Neo is unplugged and he just sees like this endless field of humans in pods and all they're doing is generating electricity for the machines. That's a pretty good image for a certain kind of gnosis that becomes possible in this uh, technologized age where you suddenly realize like, shit, I'm not running machines. Machines are running me. Exactly. Or um, several things. I, I want to expand on what you were saying there about technology having its own agency, because I think that's a, that's a very brilliant insight. In fact, um, you can sense this when you hear MIT scientists talking. And it's not just there's the kind of vulgar level of like the meme science says X, yeah, Y, right. and Z, like yeah. science says stuff, like science has its own mind or, right. uh, uh, or, but it, it's, it's but actually, maybe there's some truth to that. I think you're right. I think there is some truth to that. It's not the practice of science, but it's this entity called science that has arisen in this world and suddenly it has its own needs. Uh, but we're talking about technology now. There's, um, what's his name? Gallanter, is that his name of the one of the scientists that um, Danbeck interviews? He's the guy who was sent a bomb by the Unabomber. Oh, yeah, Gallanter. Gallanter, right. So Gallanter is talking about his idea of mirror worlds. So he's coined this term which refers to a world in which all complex systems that exist in the actual real world are reflected digitally in some kind of interface, some kind of software. So instead of wandering about a real university campus to see what's going on, you actually just go into the software, perfect software reflection of the campus and see everything, what's being taught, how the plumbing's working, everything would be laid out there. So he's basically talking about a perfect replica of our world that is clearer, more rational and more accessible than the actual messy, muddy real world. And that in itself is telling as far as the, I, I would argue, and I think, I think you'd agree, the profoundly Gnostic tendency that's at work in these types of, um, uh, technocratic uh, circles. And not, I'm using the word Gnostic in its old dualistic sense of matter is evil and spirit is good. Um, there's a part where that guy, Galunter, says that technology corrects its own wrongs. So he says, yeah, it's true that the internet has resulted in a lot of bad journalism, but now we're seeing that it's much easier to start a newspaper than ever. Therefore, Whatever it does wrong, it corrects. And this is, this is a, an article of faith for these guys. Technology creates problems. Nobody can deny that. Toxic waste, nuclear waste, etc. But technology fixes the problems it creates. And this is a law. It's, it's put forward as a law. This is how technology works. And let's just entertain the possibility that they're right. Okay? So that means that we're in a situation where 
the driving force of our world, technology, is constant. We know it's constantly going to be creating problems because engineers are problem solvers. So engineers have no purpose unless they have problems to solve. So engineers love to believe that technology will keep generating problems that they can solve with technology. Well, the world that we live in, if that's the case, is a world of eternal and constant crisis. So the one world government, which aims at creating the world citizen who's amenable to difference and change, constant change, is a citizen who is, um, has been acclimatized into an environment of constant and eternal crisis. There's always some major problem that needs to be solved. That's the world we live in. We live in a world of constant crisis. And the problem with the world of constant crisis is, yeah, you, you become uh, accepting of change because change is always happening. There's always the new iPhone coming out and you have to fork out another, you have to sign a new contract for your phone to get the new phone or else you're fucked. Yeah, everything's outdated. You need to constantly update your shit. And it goes on and on and on and on. You're constantly having to fix stuff because everything's built to have problems crop yes. up. Yeah. So in this world, you're accepting of change, but never will the change be your change. It's always the things change, the, yeah. the, the technologies change. That's so right. if you're, if you wake up tomorrow and your basement is flooded, you have a serious problem. So your life becomes the life of the guy dealing with the flood. That's a role that people have played for millennia. What do we do about the flood? We have to figure during that time, you can't be interested in your own change, in your own difference, in your own becoming. Yeah. You completely become the, the, the paper doll, that sock puppet of the guy dealing with the flood. Mm. It seems to me that what we would like and what maybe that's what Kaczynski is getting at. I'm not sure. I haven't read the manifesto, but I think that what would really be conducive to human flourishing at the individual level and Kaczynski does talk about the death of the individual in this new technological society is a stable society that allows people to live out their own change. But instead, we've been thrown in a situation where we're constantly living changes that are imposed on us. Yep. So this is exactly how I think technological society uh, is a threat to individual becoming. And I think that's a real problem. That's a really good argument. I, that's brilliant. And it also makes me think like the other day I thought about tweeting I haven't been tweeting a lot. I run the Twitter Neither account badly, but I was just going to write with no context. I have it on very good authority that the world is going to end <laughs> because I was just like every fucking time I open up my Twitter feeds, there's someone else writing some new thing about some new fucking thing that's going to destroy us all. So like insects are dying out or... Bee, the bees, the bees, or <laughs> I can't even remember them all. I, I, and I'm and I'm not negating these things. Yeah, right. I, I'm not one of these people. I'm not a climate change denialist. I'm not saying that it's great that we're like <laughs> making everything go extinct. But, you know, there's this gets us back to the first real episode we ever did together. The Garmin Bosey episode. It's like, yeah. it's like we've gone from one world ending existential threat to a, just a bumper crop of these motherfuckers. Like we used, it used to be the atom bomb, the end. Now we have great consumer choice of potential apocalypses. Yeah. This situation that we talked about in the Garmin Bosia episode, which I compared to the Elizabethan cell of little ease, mm. where you can't lie down, can't sit, can't stand there. You can't find a stable position. You're always on the hook. You're always... You know, you're always flinching, waiting for the next blow. That situation is, I mean, what I was saying is before is like, that's what, you know, that entity, the fear, what capital F fear wants, right? But in the context of the present conversation, that's what technology wants. Right. Because that's the ultimate in solutionism. It's just sort of like, well, let's just make the problems bigger. Right. And let's make the stakes as high as possible and let's have as many of them as we can. Let's give ourselves a real challenge. Let's yeah. give ourselves something to do. And it, it, you don't have to be a technocrat and be like, oh, I'm working on carbon scrubbing or whatever. That's fine. You can be you can just be somebody on Twitter being worried that the bees are dying. And that's and that's giving you something to do. You've got a right. job. And that is a job that technology wants you to have. 
That's a good point. I think that it's only logical that a system founded upon crisis would be constantly imagining larger and larger crises. Yeah. Um, and, and when we're talking about technology here, we're talking about technology and, and capitalism. They're mixed up together in a, a certain sense. Although I don't think you can abstract out capitalism from any particular historical situation as people tend to do. So I think that technology is a better term for describing the entity than capitalism. Yeah. Um, but it, it seems like it's inevitable that a system founded upon these principles, the technology corrects its own problems, therefore technology needs problems to solve, it would be a kind of, um, what's the word, millenarian or yeah. uh, chiliastic uh, movement, that it would be a kind of apocalypse cult. And we do live in that world. I mean, I'm not denying climate change either. But far from it. I think it's. I think that the science is pretty clear on it. I'm, I'm living I, it right I'm now. Not, yeah, exactly. So crazy, crazy fucking weather we've been having. Right, exactly. So we all know, but the tone of the discourse is so starkly black and white. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I don't argue for this, but I'm saying, who's to say that the world won't be better <laughs> because of climate yeah. change? I'm, I'm just saying there's always the possibility. This is the kind of Philip K. Dick argument from Minority Report. You can't decide what the future is going to be. Yeah. No experts know the future. Yeah. <laughs> they only know the past. The people who are experts are looking constantly backwards and they're looking at the data that's accumulated and they're making predictions. And sure, that's useful. That's essential. But it doesn't warrant, I think, the apocalyptic tone of some of the discourse. And I actually think that if we were to take a less apocalyptic tone, it would be better incentive for individuals to maybe collaborate actually with do those, something actually yeah. do something about it I, I find the rather calvinistical tone right, uh, right. Of, of a lot of environmentalism to be unhelpful for exactly that reason uh, we're supposed to inhabit this kind of miserablest frame and that's supposed to do something about the environment on the contrary i think for a lot of people it makes them feel like well fuck it we're all doomed anyway right. um what always what seems to be the eternal truth of technology is that things will get better in some ways and worse in others. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and whenever someone tells me, no, this will be an unalloyed good, things will get better and there will be no downside. I don't believe them. But by the same token, if somebody says, oh, there's, here is an impending change as a result of technology and there's no upside. Likewise, I, I can't believe you. Right. No, definitely. And that, that goes into the, the question of, of, uh, of ideology and utopia, right? Because one word that comes up again and again in, in, the, in Dambeck's film is the word utopia. But it's used in a very interesting way uh, by Kaczynski and by the narrator, by, by Dambeck himself. It doesn't just mean some model society that someone's mapped out and wants to bring about. I mean, utopia, the, the Greek word means no place, right? Right. Um, so, and we were talking earlier about, or was it in the Patreon thing? We're talking about, yeah, it was in our Patreon extra that we recorded for Under the Skin. We were talking about uh, dreams as being in a kind of, dreams and visions as occurring in a kind of no place. Right. So thinking about that gives me the sense that a utopia is a kind of collective dream and the dream admits of certain things and transforms certain things to suit its own. It's not the tool that's shaping us necessarily, although the tool does a lot, but it's the kind of dream that, that sets the parameters for how the tool is deployed and developed. I mean, it, it, there's nothing about the personal computer that said Twitter and Facebook. It's, right. a, it's a weird co-creation between the entity of technology and us and our needs that give rise to things like Twitter and Facebook, which are specific instantiations of this technological entity we're talking about. And one of the things that Dambeck does in this is he shows us how some of the philosophical roots of the kind of Silicon Valley techno-utopia that we're living under now, or at least we all have to deal with this small group of people's way of thinking. It's like in all of our lives all the time. Like we all have to deal with social media constantly, or most of us anyways. Um, and th these platforms are embodiments of a particular ideological stance that's held by a small group of people I mean, the perfect example is Uber, the way Uber destroyed the taxi industry overnight. And Uber exemplifies the moral 
vision of uh, this particular technocratic ideal, right? It's also making the people who hold this ideal and who've who developed the app extremely wealthy, uh, right. coincidentally. So I, th- I just thought that was interesting. How, how in an interview, Dambeck says, um, before a machine is constructed, and he's talking about the machine in the, in the social sense, the, the big sense, before a machine is constructed, it is, it is usually preceded by a philosophical superstructure and a utopia, which originates in literature, philosophy, or fine art. That is the necessary hummus and intellectual climate before the engineers can reach for the drawing board. The times have to be ripe for the realization of an idea. In this case, the case of uh, technology, one must look back to the preforms of cybernetics and systems theory, to the Vienna Circle, Newton, Descartes, Leibniz, and uh, Nicholas of Cusa. Back to the beginning, when doubts and former certainties arose and people first conceived of what he calls the boundless. So it's interesting to think that this whole technological creature that we've been kind of... Uh, describing here is it has its roots in philosophy and art that it's yeah. not just the work of engineers um, that it had to be thought up first by aesthetic aesthetic thinkers or poetic thinkers mm-hmm. a good example is the akashic records the akashic records is an idea from the 19th century spiritualist movement it's a place where you can go and get any information you want it's basically the internet bang, ready-made right there. And it took a hundred years to realize it, but the idea was absolutely there in those circles. The Akashic Records turns out to be the Wayback Machine. Right, yeah, exactly. And the Ouija board is the interface. I mean, the Ouija board is an interface for consulting the internet. That's what it is. And the internet is a kind of facsimile of the spirit world. I say facsimile because I think the spiritual spirit world actually exists, <laughs> but we're, we're more blind to it now than ever. <laughs> Because we're always on our goddamn screens. And just as using the planchette, the Ouija board can result in um, some pretty bad misadventures. You could invite some pretty ugly spirits into your home. Same thing can be said for logging on to Twitter. pulled another card. This one I pulled from the bottom of the deck. So um, those of you listening at home, never done tarot readings before. One thing you can do if you want to pull a card, just a single card reading commentary on your situation, you pull a card, you read that. That's what I just did before and came up with world one world government. Uh, Sometimes if you're like, I feel like there needs to be something more said about that, you can turn the deck over and see what's the bottom card of the deck. And that's what I just did. So I have another of the major arcana. This one, Arcanum 19, the sun. And this one is, I'll hold it up for you so you can see it again. We will put put it in the show notes. It's very beautiful. I really love mm. these cards. They're very attractive. Um, it says, an end to industrial civilization. And there's a kind of a, a triangle at the top. And on one side of the triangle, it says anarcho-primitivism, and on the other side, it says post-left anarchism. Uh, it shows, um, like, it says Fifth Estate magazine in a little inset circle. And here are some of the, they're just almost like bullet points, like they're phrases that refer to different aspects of this basic idea, the end to industrial civilization and uh, the imaginings, the utopias of anarcho-primitivism and post-left anarchism. Destruction of technology, eradication of all forms of domination, no institutions of hierarchy and control, informal affinity-based associations, rewilding, abolition of the producer-consumer-based society, geographic, social, cultural, imaginal, autonomous zones now, the complete dissolution of abstract power, and finally, the values and goals of those who produce and control technology and are always embedded within it. Wow. Yeah. 
So we have here the kind of um, retro pagan kind of yes a component of this entire thing, which is interesting because in the in the documentary, uh, Dambeck interviews um, what's Stuart his Brand, Stuart Brand, yeah, in California, who was one of the one of the pioneers of of modern IT of of IT, I should say, of uh, computers, yeah. and he coined the phrase personal computer. The term he founded, he founded the first online bulletin board, the Well. Right, exactly. He was on the Merry Prankster store with uh, Ken Case, Ken Kesey, Ken Kesey, yeah, yeah, with Ken Kesey, and um, very itch, interesting dude. And one of the things he did in, in the seventies, he started this magazine called the Whole Earth Catalog, in which. It seems strange to us now, but you can have an ad for uh, a manual on how to build your own Henry David Thoreau style wood uh, a cabin and right juxtapose right next to it would be, you know, uh, an ad for a, a, a computer or like a, a, a very a, early version of a computer. A personal right. Exactly. Computer. Yeah. And the, and Dambeck asks him, it's like, didn't you see a conflict between these things? And the way he phrases it, I, the way he. He answers that question I found fascinating. Basically, what he says is drugs and the hippie retro nature thing and the drug thing were both dead ends. The computer thing was not a dead end. That's what worked. So for him, the technological society we're living in right now is a realization of the 60s counterculture dream, the decentralized open system thing. One thing that the director of the net does is also to juxtapose pictures of, this is towards the end, of Ted Kaczynski's cabin and the diagrams of like a homesteading log cabin, the plans for which were one of the items you could buy from the Whole Earth Catalog. And, you know, I've always found the Whole Earth Catalog really fascinating. I have a copy uh, of it in my office, one of, one of its issues. Um, I just find it super interesting. There's this idea, the idea of a kind of post-scarcity anarchism, anarcho-primitivism, imagining human beings living in uh, tribal, kind of basically paleolithic forms, social forms, and yet transformed by machines. There's a novel by Ursula Le Guin called Always Coming Home that imagines a post-apocalyptic California in which there are tribes of that sort, sort of like, you know, Paleolithic style tribes living in what used to be California. And the one science fiction sort of flavor of it is that there are these um, computers and clearly almost like a sentient race of computers. Like there's this kind of technology that's just become an autonomous kind of species. And you can catch glimpses of it off on the side. But basically, it's just like people living in Paleolithic pre-modernity side by side with like unimaginably futuristic technology. And this image, it's a poetic image. It's actually a very beautiful poetic image. This is an image that you find all over the place in the late 60s counterculture. Uh, I actually wrote about this a little bit, or I did research on this and didn't end up publishing much of it um, for a, an essay that I published in 2009 called We Are Primitives of an Unknown Culture. Um, nice. Yeah, which is a line from Gary Snyder. There is this decided place in late 60s California psychedelic culture. You can find it in pages of the San Francisco Oracle, which was an underground newspaper that's famous for having full color, really trippy psychedelic illustrations, um, along with its, you know, kind of predictably counterculture themed content, article content. And there's images in it that show like, you know, people who are living like cowboys or people who are living sort of tribally or whatever and side by side with like fucking UFOs and, you yeah. know, spaceships and shit. That is a, like, that's a, that is a figure of popular consciousness from the time. There's a famous poem by William Brautigam called All Watched Over by Machines of Loving Grace. I'm going to read this poem. It's not very long. I like to think, and the sooner the better, of a cybernetic meadow where mammals and computers live together in mutually programming harmony, like pure water touching clear sky. I like to think, right now please, of a cybernetic forest filled with pines and electronics, where deer stroll peacefully past computers as if they were flowers with spinning blossoms. I like to think, it has to be, 
of a cybernetic ecology where we are free of our labors and joined back to nature, returned to our mammal brothers and sisters, and all watched over by machines of loving grace. Wow. It's, it's funny to think, like, it sounds funny today. Right. I, I find it finds it, it sounds it's counterintuitive, at least. And yet we, and yet actually that phrase machines of loving grace has all of a sudden there's like bands that call themselves that. And like oh. there's all these all kinds of shit on the Internet. I just was looking it up on Google. You know, I, I didn't just like remember that poem. Uh, <laughs> and and all of a sudden it's like people are naming their shit machines of loving grace left and right. So there's something about that phrase. Yeah. There's that probably is, a note of that, that's that's hooking into the zeitgeist. Well it's a beautiful phrase. There's probably a note of irony in some of the uses of it that are being made now. Since the word machine is taken on such negative uh, connotations, I think since Star Wars really, uh, before that even in the sixties people would talk about the machine, I think. There's that Famous uh, protester video of the guy's like, you got to throw yourself on the machine. You got to stop it. Remember? The yeah, that's that right. Yeah. Mario Savio. Right. So um, it, there's been a bifurcation. There's been, it's been a divergence since then between what we understand as the kind of technological world and this kind of anarcho-primitivist the ethic. Uh, yeah, but in fact, they, were, they come from the same place. And it's just one, one way we can see how they're still connected, at least the, the psychedelic counterculture of the 60s and our technologies that we use today, they're still connected in the aesthetic experience of using machines. I mean, anyone who's done psychedelic drugs will know that there is a, a, a very clear similarity uh, between those experiences and surfing the net where you're constantly confronted with kind of almost semi-arbitrary or almost seemingly random colors, concept images. You're kind of living in a dreamscape on the internet. And yeah. I don't think it's for nothing that the experience of surfing the net, um, if that phrase is still even used, uh, is so similar to to the experience of dropping LSD. I mean, the people have written, Eric Davis wrote about this and, and books have been written about Steve Jobs and his asset trips and how they influenced his vision for Mac uh, and for Apple. So yeah, I mean, these things are very much connected and we are kind of living in the realization or the realized dream of the 60s right now. Much yeah. like I think on a broader scale, or on a, on a on a more macro scale, we're living out the nightmares of the Victorians. You know, one generation lives in the dream of the last one, uh, or of the previous one, and that yeah. seems to be the way history works. As James Joyce said, you know, history is a nightmare from which I'm trying to awake, and this is precisely what Kaczynski is getting at with the the, the conflict between the individual and the collective. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. My mind's going all over the place right now. But, yeah. yeah, I mean. <laughs> The Whole Earth Catalog is an endlessly fascinating document. The Whole Earth Catalog is itself like the Hexen 2.0 Tarot, like the film The Net, in that it is a network of things, which if you I list them all for you, there's like, you know, proto-personal computers and instructions on how to live off the land. And there's books by John Cage. Uh, there's spiritual books. Some of the earliest books on Zen appeared in its pages. On magic appeared in its pages. And you were to say, what's the through line? What's the connection? There isn't much of one unless you say, well, it's all technology. The, yeah. what's, what's the expression that Brand himself used? Tools for... I forget, like, you know, access to tools. Right. That's, what he, that's what he said the Whole Earth Catalog is about. It's about access to tools. And the utopian idea there embedded in that basically is like, if we give you the tools, and tools can mean a lot of things. A tool could be LSD. A tool could be a composition by John Cage or Pauline Oliveris. We just did an episode on Pauline Oliveris. Uh, she fits totally into this chapter of intellectual history. Um, or a tool could be an ads that you're going to use to hand shape the timbers that are going to build your cabin, your Unabomber cabin in the woods, whatever. Um, tools becomes a different term for technology. And the idea just becomes like, if we give you access to technology, then you become as gods. Yeah. In fact, that's a line that was printed inside the whole earth catalog. We are as gods and might as well get used to it. Well, that, that's what the Apple logo is about, right? The apple with a bite taken out with a rainbow in it, interestingly, when we, if we refer back to our Ligotti 
episode where we talked about oh, the, man, the, yeah. the white breaking up into the full spectrum. Um, at the very beginning of the documentary, uh, Dambeck uh, summarizes in his words, the three basic tenets of the 60s. He says they, they were, the 60s message was, everything is possible. Reality can be altered. You are what you want to be. And the technology becomes the means by which this will happen. Yes. Now, the critique is that it's precisely the opposite. That's just um, what technology wants you to think. Yeah. I guess you could flip each each thing. I mean, um, reality can be altered by technology. Everything is possible for technology. And you are what technology wants you to be. Yep. And if, strangely, that seems to, to me, at least when I, I just reread... Um, understanding media and that seems to me to be this mentioned McLuhan's message but it's it, he was seen as a, a a proponent of this at the time by a lot of the the people getting into this and I think that the medium is the message means you're not in control bud <laughs> at least not yeah. until you realize the medium is a message maybe once that's in you then you can you know recover a measure of agency but yep yeah I am not a pessimist here you know, it, we were saying earlier in what I think is probably going to end up being a Patreon extra, I was saying that I don't trust any idea that purports to cover 100% of reality. And the problem with a certain kind of technological paranoia of somebody like Ted Kaczynski and saying like, oh my God, technology is this like meta organism and we are just like the people in the matrix just plugged into this system and doing what the machine needs us to do, doing what technology needs us to do. The problem with that over-totalizing vision is like the problem with all over-totalizing visions, uh, permits no escape. And any idea that permits no escape will drive you insane. It clearly drove Ted Kaczynski insane, although it's possible that he was, um, might've had one or two screws loose to begin with. Um, one last weird connection is that the event that seems actually to have really knocked a few things loose for Kaczynski was when he was unknowingly inducted into one of those Cold War uh, CIA-funded experiments in human personality and the uh, the human use of human beings. Mm -hmm. um, I forget the name. It was a very famous psychological researcher at Harvard who set up... Henry A. a. Murray. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Who, set, who set up a protocol to humiliate very brainy undergraduates, including Kaczynski. Do you want to know something very interesting? Uh, you probably caught this in the documentary. Kaczynski's code name, they gave all of the study participants a code name. Yeah. Lawful. Lawful, yeah. And there's a still, which I took a screenshot of, and it's a still from the film, showing some files. And you can read as labels on the files, lawful anger and lawful anxiety. And I was like, oh, shit, that's like, <laughs> I don't know. I thought of D&D. &D. Yeah, sort of lawful like, evil, lawful neutral. Yeah, that's, yeah, I know. I, I, know, I, did, I did pick up on that. Yeah, I thought that was fascinating. Kaczynski is lawful anger and anxiety. But um you know, what happened was that they told him that he was just going to have a conversation with another Harvard undergraduate. And it was actually a lawyer who had been giving instructions to just destroy Kaczynski in an argument and humiliate him. And then Kaczynski was forced to watch the video of him being humiliated. And they were just like doing a stress test on him. That's all it was. Uh, but this apparently just uh, this broke something. Well, he was very young. He was, he graduated from high school at 15. He was at Harvard at 16. Yeah. So you can imagine the type of experience that was, he was probably 17 or 18 when he yeah. did can that. Can you imagine? Yeah. As, so. as Chuck Klosterman says, this is like the origin story for somebody in the Watchmen. Yeah. Yeah. For like Magneto. <laughs> or, or Rorschach. Right, right, right. Um, no, I, I, I need to second what you just said. I mean, I too, I'm not, a am not, um, black and white when it comes to this stuff. Obviously. Oh yeah, actually, I'm sorry. I got, I got off track because what I wanted to say is like, okay, Kaczynski had his own reasons for this all consuming paranoia. But I think that actually it's something that you and I talk about a lot is how you always, the, like the position of the magician is someone who's like always in a position to wake up. Yes. Oh, that's, that's the key notion. Yeah. You're, I was always, go you're, you're always able to wake up. It is always possible. And once you wake up, it you aren't 
just a pawn in this sort of iron bound deterministic universe. You yeah. don't have to like you don't have to be on Facebook. You it's, know, it's, it's so funny. I had conversations with people. I'm like, well, why don't you get off Facebook? They're like, and they're sort of like, well, what are you going to do? <laughs> it's like, I don't know. Just get off Facebook. Yeah. If you hate it so much. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and, 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 and so like there's always something you can do, you know. Anyway, yeah. I'm sorry. I keep running over you. Or I keep it's OK. Um, interrupting you. But it, it reminds me of that line from Deleuze last time that we talked about in the Ligotti episode, which is he says the first step in transcending judgment is to ask yourself for if you're dreaming. The one who asks himself if they're dreaming is the magus, the, the, the yes. magician, That's the magician, right. the, the battler or the, the juggler who plays at life, who turns work into play, which is kind of the essence of magic. So in a way, it's not about getting all serious like Kaczynski and sending pipe bombs out. And it's, <laughs> That's like and the it's opposite. Not, yeah, exactly. And it's not about um, contemptibly embracing every new thing and jumping on the bandwagon and uh, proclaiming that paradise is just around the corner either. Right. Uh, the key to me, it seems that realizing that this, like all other realities, is fundamentally dreamlike and even is fundamentally a kind of dream. Yeah. And dreams are horrible in a way because they're, in a way they're irreal, but in another way they're great because they're, they're a space of play and they allow for the, exactly what you were talking about earlier when you talked about co-creation. But first and foremost, it's by realizing that you're living somebody else's dream that you get to have a chance at having your own dream. Yeah. And maybe at living out your own change instead of just subjecting yourself to the changes that come your way imposed on you. So I think that technology, as, as Heidegger said, is the supreme danger, but it contains the saving grace. And Heidegger makes it very clear, the saving grace of technology is poiesis, creation, real creation. You know, what comes out of all this, we don't know. Maybe collectively, nothing good will come out of it. But individually, at least for each of us listening or talking right now, there's the potential for, for change. There's a potential for becoming. There's a potential to wake up. There's a potential to be the magician. Consider subscribing to Weird Studies on iTunes, Stitcher, or another podcast service. You can also follow us on Twitter or support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel. Thank you for listening.